Are we ready for today? Yes. We are on it. All right. This is my favorite. I, and I know that I say this every time. Okay, here, I say this every time. I love new series. But this is a little bit different, and I'll tell you why. Is because uh, every year that I've been and had the honor of being the lead pastor here, every November we've done this series to the future. And I pray that we always will. And here, here's why. Uh, Zig Ziglar, he's a, a Christian, a life coach, a small business champion. I mean, just, just a visionary leader. He, he says this. He says, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And I, I tell you that is because what is a, I want to answer today the question, why do we exist as a church? Not capital C church. I'm talking Friends Church in Willoughby Hills. Why do we exist? And I, and I tell you that that's important because if we don't know why we exist, then we are, have the opportunity to drift to places or can drift to become something that we never intended to become. And that's what I want to war against. That's what I want to make sure that we're heading in the right direction. And I want as much people to be with us and on board. And so this is a great series to go, you know, this is my church and I'm proud. It's also a great opportunity to go, you know what? This isn't my church and I'm okay with that. And I, and I know that's crazy, but it's all right. Because I want you to be at a place where you could uh, grow deep roots and bear much fruit because the world needs fruit in this season. Amen? Amen. All right. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 the whole day. You could turn there. We'll get there in a second. Uh, you may not realize this, but two-thirds over the last several years, two-thirds of our church are new to our church. Uh, so uh, when I say these things, I don't want to assume that everyone's with me. There's a lot of people that have been coming to church. In fact, I think this is a point of celebration. It may upset a few people. Uh, I'll just apologize. I'm sorry. Uh, Upward this year is like sold out. What's crazy about that is I didn't even have to advertise it, which is wild. Um, but what I love about Upward this year is that it's sold out and predominantly like over 80% of the people that don't go to this church, which is amazing. And so, yes, that's an opportunity. So I tell you all that, there's a lot of people coming that I think we would be remiss to just assume that they believe what we believe, know what we know, or want to do what we want to do. So it's important that we take moments in our year to just pause and go, hey, why do we exist? What do we believe? Because I want us all to be on the same page because when we're, our values are aligned, we can pull much weight into the future together and we can change the world. So really quick, I, I just an un rundown of macro level, what we believe as a church. Uh, for those of you who want to follow along, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, we believe that God is, his son is Jesus and that he gave his life on a cross and made a way where there was no way. And we have a hope and a future because of the sacrifice that he made. We believe God's image is reflected in every human, not some, every human, even the ones we don't like, even the ones we don't know. And I, I think as a culture, uh, we have to be careful to not let the church lose its ownership of that one. Because I think the world is competing with the church right now of accepting everyone. But listen, here's the deal. We are all Imago Dei image bearers of God. Together, we are his house. So the image is reflected in every human. God's creation reminds us that we have worth Every single one of us, the world around us has worth. The stuff that we do has worth because he is, it's for him and his glory. Uh, God's church will still exist in every generation. Can I get an old school amen? amen? And I love that one because it's not about what you don't do, what we do, what you did and we didn't do. I believe 
that even the rocks will cry out. That's what scripture tells us, that his church, because it's his church, not our church, will exist in every generation. It may not look like we want it to look like, it may not act like we want it to act, but it will exist and it will be okay because he is the author and the builder of his church and we are just one of the expressions of his church in this world, amen? All right, God's message can be summarized in one commandment. Bonus points if you know it. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and like it, love your neighbors, you love yourself, right? The Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the, the legislators of truth, they tried to trap Jesus, and that was his response. And, and he says, all the weight of the, the law and the Old Testament, the prophet's teachings hinge on our ability to do that. Um, God's love is the key distinctive of disciples, because we're all disciples, Amen. Notice I didn't say our knowledge is a distinction. Our service is a distinction. Our elaborate buildings are a distinction. Our cool church merch is a distinction. No, it says our love, our love. God's character can always be trusted. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, it can be. Even when our vain human attempts can't be, he can be trusted. In fact, most people that walk away from God walk away because they looked for God in a person or a pastor or a situation and that person, that pastor, that situation failed them and they forgot that God never failed them. He can be trusted. God's story is good news for everyone. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, we got to clap for that one, right? And here's the hope. Here's the hope that God's spirit will keep transforming us as we get older. Now, here's what I mean, because I think some of us, you didn't cheer and you didn't celebrate for that one. You know why? Because some of you are happy with where you're at right now. In fact, you're so happy, you don't want to go anywhere else. And I don't mean physically. I mean, you, you don't want God to do more. You're content. And I would just caution you, don't let your complacency keep you from God transforming you. Because reminder, spoiler alert, he wants everything. Pick up your cross, follow him. And if you lose your life, that's actually where you find it in him. And so that I think he's inviting us into that transformation process, but our will, our obedience, our lack of saying yes is what withholds us from experiencing all that God has. So church, please keep saying yes. So what, is, what are we as a church aiming for, right? Zig said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Well, we don't wanna be just a church that, that hopes things happen, uh, relies too heavily on grace, spoiler alert, everything we do is on grace, but we don't wanna just pretend and, and fail ourselves forward. We want to have a target and we wanna hit it. So what do we aim for as a church? I'm glad that you asked. We are an expression of God's people united by the Holy Spirit in pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ here in Willoughby Hills. Now, I choose to pick fights with weird things. One of the things that I wanna pick a fight with is I hate vision statements. I do. Because a vision statement is like, how do you summarize in a statement the whole of scripture? And can you even have vision outside of scripture? No. So we just don't have a vision statement. If someone's like, what's your vision statement? The Bible. The Bible. That's it. I do, on the other hand, believe in a mission statement. And our mission statement is kind of this guiding, underlining uh, guardrails to make sure that we're heading down the road. Why do I tell you that? It's because when people come and say, I have this idea, we should do this. I simply ask, what does it advance in our mission? 
In fact, if it doesn't advance something in our mission, what's the answer? No, because we're not a country club, we're a church. We're, we're not a, a social club, we're a church. We're not a moose lodge. I don't even know what a moose lodge is. <laughs> I saw one the other day. Still don't know what it is. We're a church, right? We're, we're here to do one thing, to make heaven bigger, hell smaller. And here's how we do it. We believe that in Christ, we have a family. In Christ, we grow our faith. Pause. In Christ, we grow our faith. Again, that one's really on you. Because I, I don't care if you're a hundred year old, your butt is imprinted in one of these chairs. Every time the lights are on, the doors are open, you're sitting in your same spot. You know Jesus, you tithe, you serve, you do, you check all the boxes. I don't care if that's you or you're the person who's hung over from last night and the guilt and shame and just the feeling of your nagging mother or grandmother. You dragged your butt here today and you're wondering why you're here. I don't care where you're at in that the burden is that you grow in your faith. Because even the most seasoned saint is not like Jesus yet, because you still have breath in your lungs. And even the most person who feels the furthest from Jesus, believe it or not, we serve a God who left the 99 to go to be with you. So in, if that's you and you're here today, I will tell you, I pray that he is the closest to you right now. And I pray this message is for you because we all have the burden to grow in our faith. What we say yes to and what we allow God to stretch in us is really up to us. I hope you pray, I hope you say yes. I pray that you say yes. So we grow in our faith in Christ, we find freedom. Freedom, there's two universal truths. Uh, there are those in recovery and those who need to be. I'm gonna say that again. There are those in recovery and those who need to be. We all have hurts, habits, and hangups. What is freedom? Freedom is the expression that God wants everything. And when we entrust everything to him, we live a more free life. So freedom is discipleship. And sometimes we have to tackle our bad habits. Sometimes we have to, to tackle our bad choices with money. Sometimes we have to tackle uh, our lack of understanding. Sometimes we have to tackle a deliverance ministry to understand what's holding us back from experiencing the freedom that Christ paid a hefty price for. And that's what we're about. We're about freedom. And in Christ, we can build a better future. And I was telling the church today, I really do believe we have an incredible future. I asked my daughter, not to brag, she's not in here. She wasn't here before. I wanted to honor her. But the other day we were driving and every day before we get to school, we pray. And I was just angry. So, you know, when you're angry, I'm a child and I withhold my prayers from my family. <laughs> Sorry. So I, I said, Zoe, you pray. And I'll promise, I, I just, you know, I, I'm, I'm just never praying again. Because that lady, young girl, because listen, I'm not that great a parent. I know her mom isn't that great of a parent. I don't know who is. <laughs> but she called down the Holy Spirit in such a profound way. I'm like, I'm not praying anymore. I'm just going to ask you to pray. She's incredible. My son, I'm not sure about him. So we're still praying. Um, <laughs> But our future is bright because I know the Holy Spirit is active. The same Holy Spirit that God gave his disciples is in our kids. And when we unleash that and uncork that and give room for that, wow, he does a work. He does a work. So all that to say, here's what this means. It means the church, the elders, and I feel that our mission in this season, I say season because I don't know when it ends. I don't know when it begins. Our season right now is this, that we're, we exist and everything we do 
has to point to this. We exist to help the family of God grow in their faith, find freedom, and build a better future. That's our goal. That's our hope. That's what we strive for. That's what we say yes to. That's what we hold back a lot of things and say no to a lot of things to protect. And here's why. In Luke 15, we find, it's actually Luke 15 through 19, uh, we find a passage of several stories that Jesus told. And I love the gospel of Luke. It's written by a follower of Jesus who kind of recorded as one of the disciples. He recorded Jesus' interactions. I personally like Luke's take. Why? Because every interaction he recorded with Jesus was around a meal. And I like food. But in this, he records Jesus' messages. And in, in Luke 15 through 19, we have what theologians and commentaries called the, uh, the gospel of the outcast or what God will do, what he will chase, what he will pursue for the sake of the outcast. And we're gonna camp here. We're gonna spend the entire rest of the month in Luke 15, because there's a lot there. And so I wanna read it. Uh, There's three stories in Luke 15. We're gonna kind of fly through the first two, and then we're gonna camp out on the third story for the next couple weeks, all right? So let's let's jump into it. I'm not gonna read it all, just gonna make the point. It says this in Luke 15, verse one, it says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners came to listen to Jesus teach. What? Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often come to listen to Jesus teach. I'm just gonna be honest. I wanna be at a church that we look to the right or to the left. We don't like what we see. What we see makes us uncomfortable. I hope it looks like people that don't look like us. I hope that we're a church like Jesus that we draw those who feel the furthest from Christ because that's really who we really are. We just don't understand it. And of course... If you would have a problem with that, you would probably align with this next group of people. It says the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, they complained that he was associating with such sinful people. Even eating with them, oh no. And so I have, I've started to practice this when someone comes to me, my staff, my wife, you know, with a, with a, a, a complaint. I did what Jesus did in verse three. It says, so Jesus told them a story. It's not going well with my wife, but <laughs> Jesus told him a story. So he, he goes on, he, he tells this story of a shepherd in agricultural society. He tells a story about a sheep that gets lost. Now, any shrewd businessman would go, yeah, I got 100 sheep, one's lost. I got 99, it's a write-off. Let's keep moving. But Jesus flips the story on his head. He says, no, no, no. The shepherd goes, he leaves the 99 who are comfortable and he goes and finds the one that's lost. And look how he ends the story. This is verse seven. Uh, It says this, in the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Whoa. I just want to pause. Matt, we never forget the beauty of what we just saw here. It's the greatest miracle in life is people testifying to what God is doing and aligning their allegiance to testify in front of this house and these people that the old is gone and the new is here. That's amazing. I mean, we never take that for granted. I think it's like nine people getting baptized today. That's amazing. In November, the first Sunday in November, what day is that? It's just the day that nine people said, yes, I want everyone to know that I'm on team Jesus and I submit to his will. Because I believe he is who he says he is. That's incredible. 
He then tells another story. He, he tells a story about a woman who loses a coin. And she didn't have a lot. And so losing a coin, uh, she didn't have the business sense, right? She didn't have the business where she could call to write off her loss. So she tears apart her house. She searches feverishly all night to find this coin. And then look how this story ends. It's verse 10. In the same way, when she finds it, in the same way, there is a joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. One sinner. And, and you're probably like me because I grew up in the church and, and I just hear things through this filter and I don't want you to hear it through the filter. Uh, I always heard it as like, man, there's God, you know, OG just sitting on the throne and, and a sinner gets found, a sinner repents. And, and, and so the angels are just throwing a party and God's like, yeah. But that's not what scripture says. It, it actually says in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. It's not the angels are throwing a party. It's God off his throne, jumping up and down, screaming at the top of his lungs. One of mine is home. And the angels are watching his joy because someone is found. One sinner repents, stops, turns, and goes the other direction. And then, because it wasn't enough, he wraps it up with this story that we want to camp on. And I'm going to unpack it for the next several weeks. It says this in Luke 15, we're gonna pick up in verse 11. To illustrate the further, the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. One day the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, I'm going to read the whole story, but I just want to just draw attention because I think if we don't have the right vantage point, we'll miss this story. The vantage point here is real simple. He says, I got to illustrate this point further. So he tells this story. He says, there's a dad and two sons. So right away, we have three key players. We have a father who clearly is wealthy, clearly is generous, and clearly is weird and weird. I'll explain why in a second. You have a younger brother who's clearly arrogant, thinks he knows better. Anyone ever been a younger brother? We have an older brother who he's got his own problems. And it's three vantage points. And that's where the course of this next several weeks are gonna. Today, we're gonna look at the vantage point of the father. Next week, we're gonna look at the vantage point of the older brother. And then week three, we're gonna look at the vantage point of the lost son, the younger brother. And here's my prayer, spoiler alert, I'll just tell you what it's all about. I pray that we always strive to be like the father. My fear is we don't realize we're the younger brother, we're really the prodigals. My hope is that we never become complacent like the older brother. And too often we've become complacent. So you have this father, and I told you he's weird. I told you he's crazy. Why? Because if uh, old covenant, kind of the tradition of the Hebrew people, what would happen when a dad would die is the older son, the most important son, the one who carries the family name, the one that matters, he would get two thirds of the estate. Any sibling that was left would get the remainder. So that younger brother would get one third of the estate. That brother, that younger brother knew that he'd always have to live in the shadow of his older brother. So of course he said, oh, I can blaze my own trail. I'll be all self-starter. So he goes to his dad and he says, hey, I wish you were dead already. Just give me my money. And if you were a dad like me, I'd be like, get lost. But this guy, 
And again, it's a culture where they didn't have banks. He didn't go to the bank and be like, I'll cash out my 403B. No, no, it's an agricultural society. This father, crazy, recklessly, he goes and sells property. He sells cattle. He sells sheep. He cashes out. He liquidates one third of his estate and puts all of that coin in the hands of his youngest son. That's what's crazy. He was abundantly generous. When all of us would look at him and go, you're crazy. He still said yes. So I want you to kind of keep that vantage point as we read the rest of this story. A few days later, the younger son packed all that he, all his belongings, everything he had, and he moved to a distant land. There he wasted all his money on wild living. Just let you give some room to visualize what wild living is to you. If we could all see each other's thoughts overhead, it would be hilarious. <laughs> some sweet old lady's like, he bought a jet ski. Some 20-year-old's like, oh, I can't, I'm in church. <laughs> I'm not thinking that thought. It's just funny. Okay, go with me. Oh, I can't, can't recover, I'm sorry. About that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs, because Jewish people and pigs go real well together. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him a thing. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have enough food. They have enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I'm gonna go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, he embraced him, he kissed him, and he said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house, put it on him. Get a ring for his finger, sandals for his feet, and kill that calf that we have been fattening, for we must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead." but now he has returned. He was lost, but now he is found. And my favorite passage in scripture. So the party began. The party began. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, as we look at the vantage point today of the son, not the son, the father, may we be overwhelmed with your generosity. May we endeavor to be like you. God, in that, may we recognize that at the best day, we're still a prodigal who you ran out to find us. And God, I pray that you would caution us, you would keep us, you would, would convict us of never becoming a complacent older brother. The religious elite who, who looks down at the loss with disdain. So Father, we, as we unpack the rest of this message today, we pray that you would do, one thing you could do, you would speak to us, you convict us, you would expose in us what needs to be altered to reflect more of you and less of us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You know, there's this uh, thing in scripture, 
And I, and I mentioned it earlier that, that there's this, this moment where, where Jesus was asked by the religious teachers, hey, well, what's the most important thing? And they were trying to trap him. They were looking for a reason to hurt him, to convict him, to, to punish him, to trap him, you know, just to, to, to ruin his day. And, and Jesus, because he's Jesus, he's a master of God's word. He, he looks at him and says, no, 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 listen, I'll answer your question. And this is where we get this, this challenge, if you will, this directive, this great commandment that all of us on our best day, we work hard to make happen, but we don't always succeed, amen? And that great commandment I put on the screen for you is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with everything. And then number two, just like it, weighted in a close second is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You can find more about that in Mark and, and just in any of the gospels, really. But, but then there's this other thing that he says. It's after he conquered the grave. It's after he's, he's, he's changed the world. He, he's with his disciples and, and they're looking at him. They're saying, right, is it time for you to take it over? Is it time for you to, to, to bring heaven back? And, and God says, no, my time has not yet come. In fact, I'm leaving you now. But there's going to be one who I'm going to give you who's even greater than I, and he's going to do incredible things in and through you. But here is your job, disciples, and it's the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, it says this, I put on your screen, uh, we are to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make disciples. Preach the gospel, make disciples, and go to the ends of the earth. And I love this because if I'm honest, church, can we, can we just be honest today? Is that okay? Can we just be truth tellers? Yep. We love the earth. We love the end of the earth. We love to the world. We love paying the missionary to do all the hard work, which I, I'm just going to give you some Kyle conjecture. The stupidest job in the world is a missionary. What did he just say? No, no, it's actually the most important job. What's stupid about it is we tell a whole bunch of people to go into the world to uh, do good work, risk their life, share the gospel with people. Oh yeah, and uh, you got to fundraise your own salary. What a horrible business model. Those are the people that shouldn't have to worry about a cent as they're pouring out their lives in the most uncomfortable places in the world. But we like that. We like writing a check and saying, you do the work. You know what we don't love? We don't love going to the world to our neighbor next door and saying, hey, life's not going well. You, you want to come to church with me? Can I, can I tell you about this Jesus guy that I follow? We, we don't like to the waitress who's had a bad day, clearly because the service is horrible. Kitchen's all backed up. There's labor shortages. She's probably the one person pouring out. Or she hates her job. She hates hospitality. She can't find a job anywhere else because we've exported manufacturing to other places and you can't find a decent job. And, and you know, as awesome as all these is, $17 enough isn't enough for me to work at all these. So here they are serving tables on the hope that someone might tip them to make enough. And we can't just be generous and say, hey, I love you. And if I could tell you more about why I love you, I, I would love to tell you. We love the gospel when it's in other people's hands. We're not big fans of the gospel when it's in our hands. We think we are, but we're not. Sorry. And here's the problem. I think many of us are trying our best with the great commandment. To love God with everything. Yeah. 
I think the Western church is not succeeding in the Great Commission, and I'm going to tell you why. It's the bridge between the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. It's this, this trait of Jesus, this identifying mark of Jesus that we have forgotten in Western Christianity. And are you ready for it? It's the Great Compassion. The bridge between the great commandment and the great commission is the great compassion. How well do we love our neighbors as we love ourselves? The trait that we have written off of Jesus in Western Christianity is empathy. We just want everyone to level up, change their behavior, get their lives right, and come to church. And then give us their money so we can grow bigger churches. But are we really walking with people? And I ask you those questions because what we see in this vantage point of the Father moving forward is so radical, it's so crazy, that if we did it, the walls would not contain the fruit of our efforts. We would be planting churches, building churches, or filling churches, other people's churches, if we just did what the Father in this story did. So let's unpack it. When his son came to his senses, scripture tells us that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. That's interesting. It's almost like the dad knew when he liquidated his estate, yeah, he'll be home. He'll come back. I don't know about you parents, maybe even praying for a son or a daughter that you feel like is far away. Would you just do what this father did? Every day he got up, and where did he go? To the front porch, and he looked for his son. Every night as the day end, where did he go? He went to his front porch, and he looked for his son. Then when he saw his son, he didn't fold his arms like, told you, and make him do the walk of shame. What did he do? He got off his butt, and he ran to his son. He ran to him. Uh, we have this thing here, it's called Guest Central, and, and I love our Guest Central. If there's a thing that I'm really passionate about, uh, for most of my years, I did guest ministry, and I will tell you, it makes me very angry that Disney has better hospitality than the church. It, like, angers me. But every Sunday is an opportunity for a prodigal to come home, a lost son or a lost daughter to come home, and what do our Guest Central do? They don't stand behind a counter. No, they go to people. And what do they ask? They say, hey, are you new here? And you know what? One of two things is going to happen. The person's going to respond, no, I've been coming for this long. They're like, cool, I don't know you. What's your name? And they're going to make a new friend. Or they're going to be like, yeah. And like, cool, can, can I help you navigate this? In fact, why don't you come over here? I, I would love to get your, know, don't know you, your name. Like, who are you? We care about you. And then we put a gift, not just any gift. It's an expensive gift. Oh, no. A tumbler. And I love it when church people are like, hey, how do I buy one of those tumblers? Go visit another church, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. Please don't leave. Um, but it's not for us. It's for them, and we want to know they're valued. But what you don't know is what happens behind the scene is for the next nine months, we walk with them. What? Nine months? Yeah, people don't go to church every week. In fact, just I had a 10-minute party with five people. 
and some, some servant leaders were in the wrong room. And, and when they realized that they were in the wrong room, they left, but quickly they, they found me. They're like, what was that? I was like, oh, that's just five new people to church. And what was amazing is just today, right after the 8.30 service, here's the five stories. There was a mother and a father and their daughter got saved. So they left their church to help her find a church. So they started bringing her here. They're like, oh, we like this church. But more importantly, our daughter likes this church. And so they committed to coming with their daughter. Now they're older, they're seasoned saints. They're the typical Cleveland snowbird. They go to Florida for four months. Oh, the life. (laughs) The daughter says, I really like this church. So she drags her coworker. Her coworker gets saved. She tells me today, it's so funny. I'm at this church and we're in a series called To the Future. And that's the one thing I'm unsure that I'm unsure if I have right now is a future. And that's who I'm talking to. And then what do the parents say? They say, yeah, the Lord is convicting us. We're not going to Florida for four months. We're going for a month. They need us here. That's just my conversation today. And I'm going, that's the future of our church right there. And we walk with these people because we don't want to be a big church. We want it to be a person's church where they're connected, where they know people. So we run to meet them. We're excited that they're there. We care that they're there. We leave the 99 comfortable people who we have all of eternity to debate what we should have done to go after the one that we don't know where they're going to spend eternity. It's actually fitting. It said, here's what I found. The lost person. Okay. Um, he runs. Now here's the, what happens next, right? The son embraces his dad. His dad gives him a big hug. Immediately the son starts to confess like a pastor at a party. If you ever want to have fun, you don't have to do it for Halloween. Just do it at any party, any social event coming up. Just tell people you're a pastor. And here's what happens. They'll start confessing to you why they're not in church, why they're not living correctly. It's wild. Like I go to a party and like, well, what do you do for a living? I'm like, ah, oh, please, not that question. But I can't lie. So I'm like, oh, I'm in self-help. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, no, I'm a pastor. And then it's like, oh, you are. I'm so sorry. I got to stop swearing. And then I'm like, dude, I I don't really care why you're not at church. I'm just here for the little kid's birthday. Like I do care, but it's crazy. You should try it. And this son starts confessing. Oh, dad, I, I sinned against you. And what does his dad do? His dad completely and utterly ignores him and screams at the top of his lungs, servants, get this man a robe. Bring him the finest robe in the house. Put it on him. Get him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Three things he does. What are those three things? Well, the first thing he does is he, uh, uh, he restores his dignity. Now, I love this because, again, you've got to think about the context. Here's this dude who's working in a pig pasture. He was looking at the pig's food going, that looks good right now. That's how hungry I am. You think he had a time to go to Motel 6 and take a shower before he saw dad? He couldn't even afford a shower. He couldn't afford anywhere. He came home in tattered, torn, smelly clothes. And what is his dad? His dad puts the finest robe in his house around him. Why? Because he says, my grace covers you. 
I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you think you were. My grace is enough for you. And he restores his dignity. He covers his dignity. Church, my question is, do we restore people's dignity? And here's the truth. We can't answer that. If we're honest, we can't answer that. But here's a question we can't answer. Do we try to restore people's dignity? In spite of what they're looking, in spite of their behavior, in spite of what they did last night, do we offer them grace that covers what they are not? Do we value their dignity? But this dad did. He covers him. And in that day and age, a robe is what the honored guest wears. It is saying, I'm the most important person in the house. Church, can I tell you, I care about those who don't know where they're spending eternity more than those who I can argue with for all of eternity. <laughs> this man restores his son's dignity. What does he do next? Puts a ring on his finger. He redeems his authority in the house. It wasn't just a nice ring. It wasn't a fancy ring. Most commentators, because the purpose of a ring back then was not like pinky ring, like, look at me. No, it was a signet ring. It was a ring of authority. It meant that you had the power to conduct business in this house that you are a voice of authority. Can I tell you that one of the things that I love about this church is that we're a congregational church? What does that mean? It means that the power is in the people. You know what that also means? The burden of the pulpit, the burden of our endeavors is to empower and authorize and deputize the people to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. To sit here and go, hey, and I'll tell you this, do you know who the best people who work in guest services is? Brand new people. Because you look at me like, hey, you, you're now here. You know how we walked you through this process for nine months? Will you help us find other people like you? And they're like, yes, because that was amazing. We restore the authority that the, the people have. The people, authority is not designated by this pulpit. Authority is designated by your calling to be a son and daughter of the most high. And so this father restores his authority. Doesn't make him change his behavior. He restores it because his grace is enough. And the last thing he does, he puts sandals on his feet. In that culture, in that identity, only the slaves and the servants went barefoot. And this son came back convincing himself, scheming and plotting, oh, I'll just be a hired hand. I'll just earn my way. I'll just work my way back into my father's favor. And the father put an end to that right away. He said, no, 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 put some sandals on. Because there isn't anything you could do to ever work for this. There isn't anything you could do to earn this. There isn't anything that you could do to change my favor. You're my son and I love you. What does he do? He renews the identity of his son. He renews his identity of the son. Verse 22, kill the calf that we have been fattening for we must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now is returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. He rejoices. You know who doesn't like rejoicing? 
complacent people who tell you that's a waste of resources. That's the older brother, if you didn't know. Why are you wasting that? So what, he's home. He shouldn't have left. Why, why are you being so opulent to people who aren't even here yet? Because God was opulent to you? Because you didn't have the pain of leaving doesn't mean you don't need to be found, older brother. But what I do know is the son of mine is home. And so we will party. He rejoices at what God is doing. I'm gonna land the plane. Worship team can come. Can I tell you one more story if you will indulge me? I love stories. Jesus was a storyteller. Stories, for some reason, they, they help level the playing field. There's a story back in the pioneering days as people were moving west, they had the Oregon Trail. There was this run on resources that they thought could, could change people's positions. And so they, they were flooding the west in great journeys. And of course, it came with great expenses, lives lost, diseases spread. Very few people that started the journey made the journey. Back in this old west town, right on the eastern slope of the Rockies, they found a stream that became a main thoroughfare for the Oregon Trail. The stream at this point was the most narrow in the entire eastern slope. And so to keep them from having to go miles out of the way, they chose to cross at this stream. The wagons and horses could get across just fine, but it was just a little bit too wide and just a little bit too deep for people. So they would unpack the families and they would do this thing called the two-step. It's not a dance move. They would take from the bank to what they found was a large rock sticking up in the middle of the river, the stream, and then they would jump from that large rock to the other side, and that's how they would stay dry because wetness in winter is the enemy of cold feet is death. You can put that together. So they two-stepped this large rock sticking up out of the water in the middle of the stream. As the years passed, pioneers settled in the area. Of course, the Oregon Trail came to a close. People started to develop the land. Cities started to pop up. They built their cabins. They strung their fences. They plowed fields. One man felt like he reached paradise. He crossed the river and he said, this is it. This is home. He built a cabin. He strung fences. As he built the cabin, what he didn't account for is the, the jet stream of the wind coming over the eastern slopes. The wind would blow and so his cabin door would swing wildly at night. So he looked at the stream and he says, that'll do. He wades out and one summer day, he picks up this giant rock. He carries that rock up to it and it becomes his doorstop. It keeps his door from blowing at night and he's happy. He has kids, he family multiplies more cabins. Sure enough, his nephew getting the fruit of all his labors. Years pass, railroads built across the nation. More people push further west. A nephew of the old pioneer went east. He got to go to school using all the return of his parents and his aunts and his uncle's investment. He goes to school and wouldn't you know it, he studies geology. It's spring break and he comes back home Travels all the way there. I don't, probably not spring break, let's be honest. He's probably done with school. Takes like months to get anywhere. He travels home to his uncle's cabin and there he's sitting there and he's looking and he sees a large rock because technology had advanced. He didn't need a door stop anymore. They had latches. 
His uncle, not knowing what to do, he just shoved the rock over to the side. And his nephew's looking at that and he goes, that rock looks different. And he starts to inspect it. He starts to, to pick it up. He starts to look at it. He saw a rock and after inspecting it, he realized he had not just found a large rock that people step on to get where they're going. It wasn't just a heavy rock that was used just to keep the right people in and the wrong people out. It wasn't just an ugly rock that no one knew what to do with, so they just shoved it to the side. No, what he found was a rock of pure gold. In fact, it was the largest gold nugget ever discovered on the eastern slopes of the Rockies. For three generations, everybody saw something different. Some saw it as a stepping stone to get where they wanted to go. Some people saw it as a doorstop to keep the right things in and the right things out, wrong things out. Some people saw it as some ugly thing that just needed to get pushed to the side. But an educated person being the nephew. And education is funny. You know what education means? It means you know something that you can no longer forget. And my prayer is that right now in this moment, I taught you something that you can no longer plead ignorance on. Because what he saw when he inspected that rock is something that no one else saw. He saw its value. And why am I telling you this story? Because I think too often we are stepping over people. We are keeping people as bouncers, keeping them in and keeping the right things out. We're pushing people to the side because they don't look right. They don't act right. They're ugly. Their behavior doesn't align. But what we really need to see is that they have value because they're image bearers of God. And I love what Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. It's really important. I, I even added a little to it. Not because it's scripture needed attitude, but I want to make sure you get it. But on screen, it says this. Together, we are his house. Here's where I added. It, it doesn't say some of us. It says all of us. Together, we are. All of us. The stepped on, the stepped over, the push to the side, the ugly, the not good enough. Together, we are his house, built on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Jesus. Everything about a cornerstone is it's, everything is designed and built off the cornerstone. It's a foundation that everything is straight to. The cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. Together, we are carefully joined in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And I will tell you, church, where we are drifting, we're doing pretty good on the great commandment. I think we are really trying to love God with everything. I think we're failing, if I'm honest, at the great commission. I think we are inviting people. We're making a few converts, but I don't think we're making disciples. And I will tell you the reason why is because we have lost God's spirit of compassion. Compassion. And if we're ever going to get back, which in Jesus' name we will, but, but here's what I mean we, I mean the church. Not just our church, the church. If we're ever gonna get back to being the light and the hope of the world, where that is our reputation, 
it's gonna take a lot of compassion. And I love what one of my favorite authors, Bob Goff says. God needs ushers more than he needs bouncers. We're not the ones that decide who gets in. Loved us. Loved us. And here's my landing point. The church will grow. The capital C church will grow when we realize that Jesus wasn't calling us to the pulpit. He was calling us to the fields where his harvest is. It's not about what I do. It's not about how awesome they are. It's not about how cool our hoodies are. It's not about cool our graphics are. It's about how compassionate, reckless abandon are we running to people who have maybe wronged us, harmed us, don't deserve our grace and restoring, renewing and redeeming what is lost, covering them in grace, restoring their authority, giving them a new identity and ushering them into our house. Because I want this church to be filled with people when you look to your right and you look to your left, they don't look like you. And you know what I'm preparing you for? Heaven, because when you get to heaven, a lot of you are gonna be surprised. What? It's just not an acoustic worship leader with cool jeans? What? God has moving lights and fog? What? God has an organ? What? He does acapella? What? Insert whatever preference you have. What? God has crumble? Yeah. What? Heaven is not going to look like here. It's going to look multiply this in everything you don't like and everything you think you might like. It's going to be expression of his church throughout time and throughout history. And it's going to be beautiful. The church will grow when we realize Jesus wasn't calling us the pulpit. He's calling us the fields. Let us sing as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the future that you've envisioned us with. Thank you for what you are up to. Thank you that God, you call lost things home. So Father, give us your heart. Let us never forget we are the lost ones. And may you keep us, protect us, convict us from ever becoming the complacent ones. Bouncers rather than ushers. We give you this time because you are worthy. And we declare that now in your name. Amen, amen. Would you stand as we sing?